Well, we have, as you know, entered into a new era in our country, and I'm coming to the last uh, of a series, um, giving attention to the changes taking place. And just recently, the Supreme Court has ruled that same-sex marriage is the, the right of every citizen. And we are told that anyone disagreeing with this new development is on the wrong side of history. But the real question for us, as Bible-believing Christians, is knowing, are we on the wrong side of Scripture? Have we misinterpreted what Scripture says, which we believe is God's Word, have we misinterpreted what it has to say? There's a growing number of people, even among conservative churches, who profess to be Bible-believing Christians who contend that, yes, As a matter of fact, we have gotten it wrong. And so it's time for a review. Now, there are a handful of individual passages, just a handful that refer specifically to homosexual behavior. There are two specific prohibitions in the Old Testament. They're both found in Leviticus 18.22 and chapter 20, verse 13. Let me read them for you. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And there's also the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's a story in which men actually attempt, attempt to rape visitors whom they thought were men. They happen to be angels. And we're told that story in Genesis 19. And that's it in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, there are three passages. There are Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. And by the way, for those of you who don't know, I, I print out my sermons, and um, if you go to the church website, You'll find the text along with the audio. That'll be there. It'll be posted sometime tomorrow. So don't worry too much if you can't write down all these references. Let me read, first of all, the one from Romans. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the man likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greeting, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You may have the New International Version. I think you would have read there about male prostitutes um, as well as homosexuality there. There are slight interpretations of the meaning of these words. And then from 1 Timothy. Now we know that the law is good 
If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, uh, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality. And again, if you're using the NIV from there, you would have read adulterers and perverts, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, these are the texts. These are all the texts that are that in the Scriptures that everyone agrees, no matter what the position is, that all scholars agree, they're making mention of some kind of homosexual behavior. Okay. Now, it's obvious as well that everything here is negative. They either directly forbid outright same-sex relations or they classify some form of it as immoral. And this is the traditional interpretation of the church. And until our generation, there has been actually little debate on the interpretation. And there has been no official alternative position in any of the main Christian churches. But there is now, there has risen now a modern reinterpretation that offers responses to this. Let me go over them quickly. First of all, they would say, regarding those Old Testament prohibitions, okay, they're taken from the law, from Leviticus, we're to understand them as temporary and as applying to the culture, that particular culture. Not simply the culture of that day, but that particular culture of Israel. Okay. They'll note, hey, there's a law about not wearing clothing of mixed fabric. There are laws about not eating unclean animals, such as pork, which would horrify everyone here in Georgia if they could not eat barbecue pork. And that's even referred to as an abomination. So likewise, they're saying is that the so-called abomination of a man lying with a man, in the same way that should be read, just as we don't practice those things anymore, They don't apply today. As to the sin of Sodom, Ezekiel, in 1649, identifies the sin of the city as pride and as a refusal to aid the poor and the needy. And it's clear just in the story itself that the intent of those citizens were to humiliate the visitors. This was not a case of same-sex desire. Then we move to the New Testament passages. And they'll note that they're all written by the same author, the Apostle Paul. And they say that Paul is referring to the immoral practices of that pagan society in which there was immoral homosexual behavior just as there was immoral heterosexual behavior. Okay? He's just talking about the immoral type of behavior for both groups. So why did Paul not then teach about loving homosexual relations? Well, he was a man of his time and his culture. He simply did not know about such relationships 
Certainly not as we do today, in the ways that it is practiced today. So what do you think? Maybe these passages are not so clear-cut as once thought. Maybe we at least have some kind of stalemate here. Now, there are answers to all of these modern interpretations. Scholars have always known that the Old Testament laws do not translate completely into the New Testament and into other cultures and times. There's always been, always been understood a threefold division of the law. There are the ceremonial laws. They have to do with the sacrifices and, and the temple rituals that no longer apply because Christ has fulfilled those sacrifices and the, the worship of the temple. Now, with these laws... There are also those that clearly distinguish Israel itself as the covenant nation of God. And so they have those those laws that speak of what is clean or what is unclean. And, And to eat them is to become unclean. But until now, no one has been baffled trying to distinguish the difference between dietary laws and laws about sexual immorality. No one has tripped over the dilemma of figuring out if wearing cloth of different types of material is the same thing as a man lying with a man. And I think even the modern interpreters realize this. Whenever they have mentioned these other laws, they always do it in a scoffing tone. It's always humorous. People are always laughing. And what they're really doing is trying to make the Old Testament laws suspect for verification. It's the same thing that a defense lawyer tries to do, trying to, you know, he's got a witness here who's against his client, and he tries to undermine the credibility of that witness. That's the whole purpose of trying to point out what scholars have always known. Now, what about the New Testament? Those who, who are for the, the gay lifestyle, who thinks the Bible will teach it, they will say, is it not notable that Jesus says nothing against homosexuality? I've had people ask me that. I mean, what do you say about that? Or that, that Paul, he doesn't even present the concept of a loving homosexual relationship. So how, how, can, he, how can you say that he would be against it? Well, it is notable it's very notable that Jesus says nothing about homosexuality. Because what it shows is that he adhered to the teachings of the Old Testament scriptures that everyone in Israel where he ministered would adhere to as well. This is the same reason he did not address the subject of incestuous relations. doesn't say a word about it. Because what was understood did not need teaching. Now, if he did believe that there could be moral sex, same-sex behavior, why would he not have spoken of it? Why would he have kept quiet about something that is so radical to his culture? Surely we do not believe that he was afraid to do so. Now, Paul, as Jesus, was a Jew he also would have accepted the same moral premises uh, regarding sexual behavior. 
Now, the one difference between him and Jesus is that he had been raised in a Gentile environment. He wasn't raised in Israel. And he ministered in a pagan culture. He was immersed in a pagan culture in his ministry. And contrary to what is said about him, he would have been aware of examples and of teachings and claims of committed same-sex relationships as scholarly studies have shown. Now I want to take a break for a moment. I want to take a little time out here in this debate. Now last week I had said that one of the responses that we should make to the outside world is our own repentance. I mean, everyone accuses us, that is Christians and Christian churches, of being homophobic merely because of our stance. And we're we're quick. We're quick to deny that charge. And, And I think mostly for good reason. Most of us now have openly gay friends, acquaintances, family members. And I think we have started to to shed the stereotypes and the fears of our own and certainly of earlier generations. But I have to confess, it's come about not because we had studied the scriptures so well that we were convicted by Jesus' words to love our neighbor. Rather, it has mostly come from living in our modern culture and simply learning from personal experience. And it's, it's after that experience that we think, you know, hey, our neighbors are okay. They're not so bad. That we then look to the teachings of Scripture about loving our neighbor. Now, that's my experience. To my shame, it has taken the pro-gay movement to force me to look at my gay neighbor as a fellow human being made in the image of God. It has taken personal experience to see that my gay neighbors can be just as mentally balanced, just as kind, and just as loving. And there are even Christians who profess to love Jesus, who profess to believe the Bible to be the word of God, who profess and want to honor God, and yet believe that their same-sex desires can be acted on. Now, our church culture, I'm not talking about this particular church, I'm talking about the culture of the church has been such over the generations that church members could not open up about their same-sex attractions. They could not turn to their pastors or their fellow members in fear that they would be feared. I mean, just recently, about a year ago, a pastor from another town met with me. We had to meet halfway and to discuss the struggles that his son was having with same-sex desires. Now, he was an associate pastor. He had gone to his senior pastor about it and was told, don't let anyone know. It's that kind of sinful response that has opened us up and our churches to these charges against us, to the present disdain we have received, and to the ongoing reluctance, the fear of our own members to talk to us. But let's go back to the scriptures now. Now this time we're going to look at the teachings that are foundational to understanding the biblical teaching and for understanding what is at stake in the whole debate. Now here's the plea of the Christian gay advocate. Here I am. I'm trying to direct my same-sex desires so that they are in keeping with God's laws. I remain chaste before marriage. 
and I subject my desires to a committed, monogamous relationship. How can that be wrong? What is at stake that even an honorable intent for a loving relationship is still rejected? That's the right question to be asking. What is at stake? Now let's consider what redefining, because this is what we're talking about, what redefining marriage, how it affects, uh, what it affects in God's Word. Well, we would have to rewrite Genesis 2, which presents the foundation and definition of marriage. The text, I'm finally going to get to the text here. Genesis 2.24 interprets the story of how man and woman were created. It gives the creation count, and then it gives, here's what this all means. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the origin of marriage. I'm speaking to Christians. You're not in the church where you think it's some social construct that came out of evolved over, over time. But as Christians, this is the origin of marriage. And the previous verses reveal how essential the concept of man and woman made for each other is. Now let me read this. This is, again, Genesis 2, beginning of verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And what the modern revisionist wants to do is he wants to insert a footnote here. However, if some men and some women would rather have spouses of their own sex, that also will be fine. They believe that, what, that this is what God intended. Even though he gives no hint, there's no hint in Scripture of such a radical alternative. Let me, let me just note here. I mean, the modern revisionist says that he or she cannot give you any scripture that promotes this thinking. The best that they can do is try to deconstruct and say, well, it doesn't necessarily say that, and, and it just didn't know at that time. Okay. But he gives no hint in all of scripture that such an alternative will be acceptable. Even so, we are to believe that this is what God approves and had planned all along. Why? Why are we to believe that? For one reason alone. So that they can be happy without guilt. Here's what the Christian is saying, who is trying to deconstruct, then reinterpret the scripture that they profess to believe. 
I have desires in me that if I cannot act on them, I will be unhappy. And I am not willing to make such a sacrifice. They want Scripture to condone, to bless their desires, and so they are revising it to make it do so. Let's reinterpret Genesis 2 according to the pro-gay revision. God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So God makes a woman for the man who likes that kind of companionship. And then he has an unspoken intent to see that children will be born who will grow up with same-sex desires, which will be good, and he will want them to come together sexually as one flesh. That's what it means to come together as one flesh. And they cannot produce children That was in the the creation mandate. But the man-woman couples, they can furnish the children for them so that the same-sex couples can be just like the Adam-Eve couples. And this way, everybody can be happy knowing that God the Creator is smiling down upon them. This is simply silly talk about God being loving and just wants everybody to be happy. Well, we're Christians. What do we think Jesus came for? Was this message here to tell us how much God loves us just as we are and we don't need to do anything? He died for our sins. He died because the wrath of God was upon us because we were sinners. He took God's wrath upon himself and and those who... Will not be, who will not profess faith in Christ will be condemned in their sins. This is the clear teaching of the gospel. It's the clear teaching of Scripture. God is holy. Now, yes, of course God is love. But we have no right to redefine love into this, this silly postmodern definition of well, just accepting everybody for whatever they want to be and want to do. God was not created in our image to make us happy in whatever way our natural feelings want to take us. And we're Christians. We believe that our Lord suffered for us. Our Lord sacrificed himself for us. He took up his cross and he calls on anyone who's going to be a believer of his, to do what? To deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Now, how do you think it sounds to him when we say, but Lord, I want to be happy. So let me, you know, let me have my personal desires. Let me take them with me. But Lord, you don't know how lonely it is for me. I mean, Are we serious? Again, we're Christians. We had agreed to this bargain. Sure, Lord. I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. I will follow you. And now we're going to add some conditions. Now, I'm applying this to heterosexuals as well as homosexuals. I mean, mean, they don't have a market on, on sins. We're the same. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. Only please, let me do so with the spouse. I cannot handle being single. 
We've got to stop this God wants me to be happy game. There are heterosexual Christians who have married unbelievers because they could not bear being alone. And doesn't God want me to be happy? They have left their spouses to marry someone else because doesn't God want me to be happy? I had a young woman come see me one time up in Philadelphia. She had found her soulmate. And she says, she's crying, doesn't God want me to be happy? They question the goodness of God. Why would God give me desires for the same gender? I have prayed for it to be taken away. Why would God give me such strong physical desires while I am single? Why does God allow me to have desires for someone who's, who's not my spouse? I got married and I still have these des- desires. I'm not talking about heterosexuals here. Have we forgotten Genesis 3, the account of the fall of man? We know that sin came in. We know that sin has marred the created world, has tainted everything that is good and that was meant for good. We know this stuff. We know that all of us, Every one of us are born with sinful desires and tendencies. Why then do we act so surprised that we have strong sinful desires? Why do we say God would not give me desires that he thought were wrong? We know about sin. We know about the fall. Wake up to reality. The account of the fall in Genesis explicitly teaches that sin is in our nature. The whole account of Scripture is how mankind acts on our sinful nature and how God then comes in to redeem us from that sin nature. How can we, now I'm talking about as Christians, how can we possibly turn Scripture and the Gospel into a message of, well, God just loves everybody and just wishes we could all just be happy knowing that. Do not cheapen the gospel. Do not cheapen the love of God. It is a love that was demonstrated by sending His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 11. Propitiation means to appease the wrath of God. The just wrath of a holy and righteous God. Now that's love. It's not this sugary, sweet story of how God just wants us all to be happy and whatever makes us happy. That is a love worth knowing. That's a God worth following and worth worshiping. Now, I'm running out of time. Do you think that the account of marriage in Genesis 2 is really just an an alternative view of marriage? Listen to Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. He's quoting Genesis, isn't he? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This marital mystery is profound. The very relationship of Christ and the church is embedded in it. Scripture opens the creation account that has marriage between a man and a woman as the foundational relationship. Genesis 1. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then scripture closes with a stunning depiction of the new Jerusalem coming down as a bride to meet her bridegroom who is no less than the Lamb, the Son of God, our Redeemer. This marital mystery of a man and a woman is profound. So who do we think we are as Christians to then reinterpret this profound mystery, to add to Scripture words that it does not only not say, it does not infer, just so we can feel good about ourselves. Who are we to take the profound love demonstrated on the cross and redefine that love to mean the opposite of what the cross teaches? That we're sinners who need to be redeemed, who need to be sanctified, to have our natural desires, whatever those desires are, be nailed to that cross so that we might serve God as His holy followers. You know, no doubt the success of the pro-gay movement, even in the Christian church, it's due to, to one thing, and it's due to appeal of compassion for our gay brothers and sisters. Look, they just, they just want to be happy. But I'll tell you whom I have true compassion for. No, actually, compassion is not the right word. Whom I have true respect, true admiration for. It is for the men and women who have committed themselves to obey their Lord, whatever the cost. It is for heterosexual singles who long to be married, and yet they remain chaste. And they will not unequally yoke themselves to unbelievers. It is for the men and women who have come to me, who have come into my, my study and sat across from me, have declared themselves to be gay. And yet because they have studied the scriptures on their own, which they wanted, they wanted it to, to confirm their desires, but they found that those scriptures clearly upheld the male-female relationship, then they determined to obey the word of God and to find their joy, a joy that is much deeper than, the, than that of fleshly desires, to find their joy in their union with Christ and in serving him. They have not made an idol of marriage, as their heterosexual kin have who think, that to be single is the sentence of condemnation. I mean, how did we ever get to that point? Our Lord Jesus Christ lived as a single man. The Apostle Paul pitied. He pitied his brothers and sisters who did not know the blessedness of being single. Now, they have not allowed their natural lust to control their spiritual devotion. And I tell you, they are receiving the commendation of their Lord. If any of you should struggle with same-sex desires, and if you have a greater desire to be obedient to your Lord, I admire you. You are not under God's sentence. You are following the path of your Lord. And I tell you, you are one of the blessed.